Okay. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the black hole. We today are going to talk about the important changes that are happening in the Muslim world. Where we are here in Islamabad, of course, we are aware of what is happening around us. This is a city of madrasas, of mosques, and we can hear what sort of converse, what sort of khutbas are given over there. But uh, living here in Pakistan, we don't know very much about what is happening in the rest of the world. Important changes have happened and are happening there. To tell us exactly what's going on, we've invited Dr. James Dorsey, who is a journalist, a very fine journalist, has won many awards. He's based in Singapore, is the author of many books, and his area of expertise is the Middle East and Indonesia, Malaysia. He has been looking at these areas of the world with the particular eye of what is happening at the level of society, at the level of government, and how religious leaders over there are changing Islam. Now I know that uh, this very title, The Battle for the Soul of Islam, and the the subtitle that Islam is changing. Well, some people may not like that very much. They think that Islam is something that is fixed for all times to come. Well, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. But uh, think about Christianity. Is the Christianity today the Christianity of Jesus Christ? Is it the Christianity of the Middle Ages and the Popes? Or is it the Christianity of the Reformation that followed? Or is it the Christianity that is now in Europe, where it is rapidly losing ground? Or is it the Christianity of the United States, where it is gaining ground, or at least has gained a huge amount of ground? So all these are issues that one must keep in mind when when asked, what is a religion? Is the religion what is in the holy texts, or is it the practice of that religion? Well, now I'll go to Dr. James Dorsey. James, welcome, and it's so good to have you here. Thank you for speaking to us. It's great to be with you, Perez, and with the audience, and it's a pleasure to be in the black hole. Thank you for having me. Well, perhaps you could tell us... Um, your impression of the changes that have that are happening in uh, the Middle East, uh, in Saudi Arabia in particular, UAE, elsewhere, wherever you are looking, and you have been writing very prolifically about these issues. You have a book, and uh, you've all you also have a blog, and you have many interviews and uh, podcasts and so forth. So you have an enormous amount to tell us. I'll leave it up to you to, to give us a bird's eye view, and then we can get into a conversation. 
Sure, let me uh, make some introductory remarks if you wish. Um, let me draw one distinction, which is I think an important distinction in the comparison that you made with Christianity. And that is that Christianity, of course, is a centralized institution, at least the Catholic Church is, and it's a hierarchical institution. And that's what sets it apart both from Islam, whether Shia or Sunni, as well as from Judaism, that are in a sense decentralized religions, not centralized religions. Now, having said that, uh, the reason I call this the battle for the soul of Islam is the following. Certainly ever since 2011, uh, since uh, 2001, since the 9-11 attacks, uh, Muslim leaders, both religious and political, went to great pains to emphasize that Islam was a peaceful religion, which I'm not denying, uh, and that the extremist expressions of it, be it um, ultra-conservative forms of Islam, such as Wahhabism, or be it jihadists in the uh, form of Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State, that those were not Islamic expressions. They were beyond the pale of Islam. Uh, and the uh, Muslim religious and political leaders were supported in that by world leaders who didn't want to be seen to be anti-Muslim as such. Um, and so what you've had is a quest for uh, what is then called moderate Islam. What that meant over the last two decades was until about eight years ago, roughly until the rise of Mohammed bin Salman and King Salman in Saudi Arabia, what you had was uh, what I would describe as a lot of formalistic celebratory conferences by Muslim leaders in which they issued declarations uh, in terms of interfaith dialogue, in terms of minority rights, in terms of condemnations of extremism and jihadism. But it all, it, it all remained in the realm of declarations. Nothing on the ground changed. With the rise of uh, Mohammed bin Salman and also uh, the increasing power that Mohammed bin Zayed in the United Arab Emirates acquired first as crown prince and now as president, we've seen significant social change. Um, lifting, you know, lifting the ban on women's driving in Saudi Arabia being an example and far more liberal legislation in many ways in the, um, um, in the United Arab Emirates and also in Saudi Arabia, the introduction of Western style entertainment as an important sector of the economy, uh, loosening of gender segregation uh, measures and so on and so forth. What we have not seen and or let me put this differently. All of this, all of these changes and reforms are driven in my mind by two, by three things. One is a new generation of leadership. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman is in his 19, is in his 30s. Uh, Mohammed bin Zayed is in his uh, 50s. They're not octogenarians. 
like the older generation of, uh, of Saudi rulers. Uh, that's one reason. The second reason is um, the need to reform, the need to reform economically, the need to uh, build economies that are less dependent on, um, on, on uh, oil and gas exports, the need to create jobs. And that leads me to the third driver, which is regime survival. These leaders understand that they need to cater to at least the social and economic, perhaps not the political aspirations of countries whose populations are in majority under 30. In other words, a, 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 a very young population. The, that whole, and that whole notion of social and economic reform that does not incorporate reform of religious law uh, has been the driver of what I would call an autocratic form of moderate Islam. Now, standing against that is uh, Indonesia. And the differences uh, can, there can, are... can, can we go to Indonesia later and finish sure. Saudi Arabia? What sure. I would like to know is um, these changes in Saudi Arabia have happened and they have been acclaimed by the younger generation there. But certainly there was a lot of opposition from the old guard, from um, other people in the royal family too. So how could these changes have uh, been implemented without um, some religious decree? Who has been saying that it's okay for women to drive? It, it has, isn't there a fatwa which says that it's okay or it's not okay? Who's, who's giving the fatwas in, in Saudi Arabia and UAE? I okay, I think there, there are several issues here. And let me take what you said further in terms of potential opposition to these changes. It's not just the older generation. There's a young Saudi scholar who did an informal survey a couple of years ago among Saudi youth, among his peers, in which he asked them what was important to them. And they said, first, they wanted, to, uh, they wanted jobs. Second of all, they wanted to have fun. And third of all, they wanted to date. And so the young scholar asked his, uh, his, uh, uh, the people he was polling, oh, does that mean that your sister can date? Oh, no, was the answer, not them. So with other words, you're dealing with a country that has been ultra conservative for all of its existence, except for the last eight years. And changing those attitudes is not something that's gonna happen overnight. In addition, you have a social stratification. So with other words, you're going to find that some segments of youth in second and third tier um, Saudi cities are more conservative than those that are, that are in Riyadh or in Jeddah or in Dammam. Uh, and there's, that also has another consequence, which is a risk factor for Mohammed bin Salman 
that the opportunities are first and foremost in Saudi Arabia's top tier cities. And he needs to get, he needs to ensure that uh, those benefits get broadened out so that others beyond the, um, beyond the um, uh, top tier cities benefit in, in, to an equal degree. Now, he's been able to, uh, to enforce these changes. And let's be clear, Saudi Arabia in many ways has changed. Those, those reforms are real. And if you are a woman who can afford the driver's lessons and who can afford a car, life has changed fundamentally. So I think one's got to recognize that. But uh, the way Mohammed bin Salman has achieved that is by creating the most repressive regime that Saudi Arabia has known. There is no space for any kind of criticism or dissent. And if anything, it's become, you know, forget the, uh, the Ritz-Carlton where um, Mohammed bin Salman took down parts of the elite in 2017 when he arrested them and basically in a power and money grab shook them down or the killing of journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi in the last in 2018 just in the last several months you've had uh people who've sent out a tweet sentenced to prison sentences of up to 45 years in prison so whatever uh criticism there may be is certainly not cannot be voiced in any form or fashion now the final point i want to make on the fatwas uh, Mohammed bin Salman is quoted as saying, and I think he's probably right in that, that his defense of uh, lifting the ban on women's driving was that women rode camels at the time of the Prophet. And if they were able to ride, ride camels of, at the time of the Prophet, why would they not be able to drive cars or trucks or whatever else today? Um, I think part of, just to round this up, part of the, what we saw in terms of ultra-conservative practice in Saudi Arabia, but you also see in parts of Pakistan, of course, is more grounded in cultural history rather than in religious law. That, okay, let me just fi finally say, that is not to say that, uh, and we'll delve into that somewhat deeper later in this conversation, that there is no need for change of religious law. There is, without question. If one looks at uh, Islamic history, Al Imam al-Ghazali uh, looked at the issue of the Islamic State, which of course is not specified in the Quran or the Hadith. It's absolutely silent there. but. He, through his uh, legalistic reasoning, came to the conclusion that a, a Muslim should obey the ruler. And even if the ruler is unjust, he must be obeyed. Is this the kind of argument that uh, 
Muhammad bin Salman is using to justify his actions that I am the ruler, I have legitimacy because of my descent, and therefore you must do as I say. Uh, as you well know, there's been great debate within uh, Islam for centuries about the principle of obedience to the state. Uh, I think that part of the, the, the notion of that obedience and the role of the state goes back to basically Ahmed Kuru, um, the, a Turkish uh, Islam scholar, Middle East scholar in, uh, at a university in um, California, if I'm not incorrect, San Diego, who uh, talks about the state, uh, the state ulama alliance. And in a nutshell, what he says is, and that goes back to that, your the concept of the Islamic state that you were just uh, describing, that up until the 10th or 11th century, the ulama were independent. In fact, they were often merchants. And if they were not merchants, Hanafi was a merchant uh, and a wealthy merchant. And if they were not merchants themselves, then they were funded by the, uh, by the merchant class. And what happened in the 11th century is that the military state arose in the Islamic world. And in that military state, the ulama lost their independence and more or less were forced to become uh, become uh, state employees. And therefore, the principle of obedience became much more central. Uh, it's, a, it's not a principle that is universally accepted, but it is uh, what grounds my notion of a autocratic form of moderate Islam. Um, it's a debate that actually now, and in this I need to jumpstart on Indonesia, but let me, we, we'll come back to that. It's a debate that is now being, um, being fueled by what is the Muslim world's most powerful and largest uh, civil society movement, and that's a movement in, um, in Indonesia. In February, so two months ago, the movement held an international a conference of ulama, which was intent, intended by very senior uh, Saudi uh, 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 Saudi um, clerics, including Muhammad Alisa from the World Le uh, Muslim League or the Rabita, as well as uh, Sheikh uh, Islam from Egypt, uh, e e Egypt's Grand Mufti, and various Al Azhar uh, luminaries, and in that. A uh, conference, Nadatul Ulama, the Indonesian group called for the abolition of the concept of a uh, of a caliphate, and the argument behind that, in part, was was twofold. One is that the notion of a nation state is not anchored in Islamic law. Yet we live in a world that is organized around nation states. And we live in a world in which the notion of a caliphate, a unified state for all Muslims, no longer is fit for purpose. Uh, and so that revives the whole de debate about what 
what what what is the state in Islamic law, and what should the state be? Yes, um, good. I'm I'm so glad you raised this issue of the caliphate or the khilafat as we call it. You're absolutely right. It's not mandated in Islam, certainly not in the Quran or the Hadith, and we know that Prophet Muhammad did not nominate a successor. Had he done that, maybe we would have been spared the Shia-Sunni divide. We would not have had the bloody wars of succession that came later. But still, the fact is that the caliphate has been around for a very long time until it was abolished in 1924, I think, in, it, in, um, in Turkey. And for a long time it remained dormant. And then came along Daesh. And Daesh, once the revival of the caliphate, it had a khalifa, a caliph, um, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And I'm sure there are more than one organizations in the world other than Daesh. There's uh, Hizbut Tahrir and others. So it's uh, good that Nahdatul Ulema has come out with such a strong statement that the Khilafat, the Caliphate, does not belong to Islam. What exactly did you say? Can you tell us? Well, okay, let me, let me be clear. I think I would differ with you on one point. The Khalifat or the Khilafat is grounded in Islamic law, and that is the problem. What is not grounded in Islamic law is the notion of a nation state. So in terms of the notion of what statehood constitutes in Islamic law, it is a Khalifat, a, khil a, a Khilafat. It is an in a, a state structure that encompasses the Ummah, the Muslim world. And yet we live in nation states. And uh, Nadatul Ulama's argument is that uh, that needs to be addressed for Islamic law to be able to function correctly in a modern world. There's also a second reason why it is. And that is that what you correctly noted the Islamic State or Daesh grounds its uh, its its ideology, its religious beliefs uh, in the notion of the Khalifat and in uh, various other um, uh, concepts within Islamic law. And so, if you really want to be struggling against extremism and against jihadism, you're going to have to address, deprive extremists and jihadists from the, uh, the opportunity to justify their actions and their beliefs uh, with Islamic law. Uh, and that is, that is the whole thinking behind this. Now, let me just make one thing clear. Um, and it's something that I uh, think is important which is Nadatul Ulama's notion of reform 
uh, of Islamic law, and it's an organization that puts its. Uh, let me let me just briefly explain what Nahdlatul Ulama constitutes. Indonesia is a country of 270 million people. 90 million Indonesians follow Nahdlatul Ulama. That is to say, one third of the population. This is an organization that is 100 years old. It was founded a century ago for two reasons. One, to counter Wahhabist incursions in parts of Sumatra. And two, because as you referred to earlier, the abolition uh, by Mustafa Kemal Atatürk of the Ottoman Caliphate in 1924, uh, it, um, uh, Nada at the time believed that there needed to be something to fill the void that was created by the abolition of the caliphate. Um, but what I think is important here, the way Nadatul Ulama is positioning a lot of this stuff is not just simply Islam is in need of reform and that's what we're gonna do. This is, again, this is an organization with a religious structure and authority of its own. So when it started with reforms, it was a convention of 20,000 religious scholars and, and uh, ulama in 2019 that abolished the concept of the kafir and replaced it in a fatwa with the concept of a citizen. And it, in doing so, what it's trying to do uh, and we can get into that in greater detail later if there's interest in that, is not just reform Islam, but also constitute a model for the same kind of reform that is needed in other major religions, be that Judaism, be that Christianity, be that Hinduism. And it is actually engaging with groups uh, in the Hindu world, in the Christian world, in the Jewish world, to try and further that notion. Okay, if we look at uh, reforms in various religions, Christianity, it began with uh, Luther, the Reformation, and uh, that then affected the, the Jews in Europe as well. If we look at, uh, at Islam and Hinduism, in the 18th century or so. Well, you had uh, people like Muhammad Abdu and Rashid Rida in Egypt who um, um, were inspired by some of the Enlightenment ideals and they sought to bring conformity between Islam and the modern world. In the subcontinent, you had a uh, few people, not very many, but um, there was a uh, Sir Sayyid Ahmad Khan, and there was um, um, Amir Ali. Uh, Amir Ali, yes, Sayyid Amir Ali, and they were under the influence of um, of the British colonial masters, and they wanted India and Indian Muslims to go along that path. The Hindus were also affected by the 
by the British in that way. And so you had the reformers like uh, Raja Ram Mohan Roy and they wanted to end sati and the class and the caste system, etc. What is driving the Nahdatul Ulema? It's clearly something that's uh, pretty big, uh, that you've got 100 million followers of that, or 90, as you said. But where, where does their impetus come from? Is it by looking at the modern world? Are they striving for enlightenment ideals? Island, the European enlightenment, what do they want, in other words? Uh, before I answer the question, let me um, draw one distinction. Which, um, and that is that, two, or two distinctions. One is the distinction I mentioned earlier. In Christianity, you had a centralized institution, which I think makes a major difference. And what Martin Luther King, in a, oh, sorry, what Martin Luther in essence was, he was a split off from that centralized institution. And the bargain that ultimately was, was concluded in Christianity was that the, the institution, the, the, the Catholic Church, retreat, retreated to the realm of spirituality, surrendered its, um, uh, surrendered its worldly temporal powers to the secular state, if you wish, uh, and retreated to the Vatican, a small island in Italy, in Rome. That model is obviously not applicable to Islam, or for that matter, to Judaism. Uh, I think the second distinction one has to draw is, and in a sense, you drew that implicitly in your, in, in your remarks just now. Past proponents of reform in Islam were individual thinkers, maybe small groups of thinkers. They were not organizations with the kind of power that Nadatul Ulama represents. And to give you two more indications of its power, it has a five million strong man and woman uh, militia, paramilitary militia. Its political party has four cabinet ministers. None of the past reformers could even come near to projecting that kind of power and that kind of influence. What drives them? They're a movement that comes out of Java. They're on the one hand, they're not a liberal movement. They're a conservative movement, a socially conservative movement, perhaps even a politically conservative movement, but, but they're grounded in Sufism they're grounded in Javan culture. Uh, they, um, uh, the socialization of Islam in, um, in, in, in Indonesia was not one that was carried out by the sword. It was through assimilation and accommodation. And I think that's what makes Nadatul Ulama in a lot of ways different from the kind of Islam that you see in the Middle East, or for that matter, in Pakistan. Yes, it's fascinating. I, Islam came here through the sword, but in Indonesia it came through via trade, and that made all the difference. 
we can't even imagine that a person like Javed Ramadi would uh, ever be leading any kind of a big movement. He does have an organization called, what is it, Al-Mawarid or Al-Mawarid, yes. But it's a handful of people, nothing much more than that. And there you say it's 90 million and they've got ministers and everything. But explain one thing. Uh, so he, he can't hear you. So <laughs> yeah, they also have a president. He said, but explain one thing. You said that they are politically conservative and socially conservative. What does that mean? Uh, what it means is, <clears throat> in social, in terms of social conservatism, um, in contrast to the developments that you're seeing in in the West, it views the family as the core nuclear unit of society. Uh, politically conservative, um, its relationships are on the center right. And in some cases, even on the far right. Now, uh, I would argue that its relationships with the center right are where uh, Nada Tuluruma is politically, whereas its relationships with certain far-right groups, for example, the RSS in India, is really designed uh, to achieve a strategic goal rather than based on uh, necessarily on uh, a, a common ideology. Um, but uh, they are, uh, you know, having said that they're conservative, um, democracy is a core principle to them. Indonesia is the world's largest Muslim majority state and the world's largest Muslim uh, democracy. And that's not something they want to change. On the contrary, that is something they want to uphold. They're strong believers in pluralism. And as I mentioned before, in the example of abolishing the, ca the category of a kafir and replacing it with the notion of a, uh, of a citizen, it's, um, uh, it's equality and equity for all, irrespective of race, ethnicity, religion. To give you one example, last year, the Minister of, um, Islam, of Religious Affairs in Indonesia, who is a member of Nadatul Ulama. He's the former head of their militia, uh, was criticized for, uh, uh, for congratulating the Baha'is on one of their holidays. And in response to the criticism, he said, they are Indonesian citizens even if it's not one of the six religions that Indonesia officially recognizes, they are, one of, they are uh, Indonesian citizens and that's, as such, I greet them. So um, would they subscribe to the UN Declaration on Human Rights? Would they have reservations about it or would they um, endorse it wholeheartedly? One of the major distinctions I think between Nadatul Ulama and uh, 
many other Muslim states, uh, including Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, which conditionally, only conditionally endorse the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and particularly are uh, concerned about the um, uh, Articles 18 and 19 that relate to religious freedom. Uh, Nada Tul Ulama endorses the declaration unambiguously. No, no conditions, no restrictions. That's very and, interesting. And has said that very clearly in its statements, in its uh, issuance of the concept of a humanitarian Islam and so on. Okay, I'll ask just one question and then uh, open it up to the audience. The Pakistani notion or the subcontinental notion of Islam is that it's a complete code of life, that everything that you want to know about the world is there in the Quran or can be interpreted from it through ijtihad. Is, that the, is there a break with that uh, in Indonesia with the Nadratul Ulema? Look, I, I, I think that Nadatul Ulama, like any other Muslim or Muslim organization, uh, views the Quran as the word of God. I don't think that, that they view the Sharia and the various schools of, um, of Islamic jurisprudence as the word of God and therefore unalterable. And in fact, what they're doing and what they're arguing for is change and reform of uh, of those con of some of the concepts within the Sharia and within Islamic jurisprudence, particularly those that uh, uh, propagate supremacy, that uh, uh, propagate differences based on religion or ethnicity. Uh, or race. Uh, so I think that's the distinction one has to make. Okay, good. Then uh, we move on to the audience and questions from there. I do not have a question because I'm very much clear about it. There are certain clarification which I want to make. First of all, as far as the obedience to the state is concerned, first of all, the uh, concept of state is concept of state is very much uh, within the uh, Quranic verses, and and I quote: "Kuntum ummatum wahida You are the one nation that has been arisen for the whole people. So the nation and the state is within the Islamic concepts. Secondly, the obedience to the state. There is also a Quranic verse which says, That means, obey Allah, and his prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and the one who is in power. That is very much within 
the meaning. Third point which I want to raise, that there are certain things which under Islamic law or within the Quranic principles that cannot be changed. And for that matter, since you are a very learned person, uh, I will request you to read Ash-Shatibi, Al-Muafiqat, Lish-Shatibi. Please write it down, and especially its volume 5. Then you would understand and differentiate between the concepts of Islam that cannot be changed at all, whether the whole world likes them or not like jihad, like num uh, uh, prayers, like hajj, like zakat, like, likewise, like right to live, right to own property, right to own his, uh, one's honor. They are the things which are very much settled within the Quranic verses and the sayings of the Prophet. So that were my comments. The otherwise, your lecture was good, and it is uh, an eye-opening, an eye-opener, and I am really delighted. But I think that we should also try to distinguish between those concepts which are not changing at all, and the concepts which can be changed. And those concepts are those which do not directly interfere with the set principles. Likewise, like you are saying, that you have given, quoted an example of Nadatul Ulama of Indonesia, that they are trying to reform. Reformation is always there. And the reformations can be done when these reformations do not directly contravene the set principles of Islamic law or that has been enshrined within the Quran and Sunnah. Okay, thank you for the comment. I, we, we will go to the next uh, question, but before that, let me say that the question of nation-state is not a solved one in Islam. In fact, if you read Maulana Maududi, what he wrote in 1934 or so about the Islamic, Islamic state, he said, Islam does not specify a state because the concept of state did not exist. The concept of a geographical boundary came with the Treaty of Westphalia 19, uh, 1648, 1648, much, much, much later. And this is why he said, I do not approve of the concept of Pakistan. And this is why he was against Muhammad Ali Jinnah, and until he was uh, convinced by Allama Iqbal, he remained in opposition to the idea of Pakistan. So you cannot say that here is a man who did not know nothing. He was, after all, a very learned person. Let's go on uh, to the can next I, question. Can I maybe just respond directly? Would you allow me to do so? Absolutely, uh, please. First, first of all, thank you for the comment. Let me be very clear. I'm not an Islamic scholar, nor am I a, uh, a lawyer. And so I don't pretend to, to, to have an expertise in, in, in Islamic law as such. Now, having said that, 
I think what is evident is that there is great debate about a lot of the points that uh, uh, the, the speaker in the audience just raised. And that's debate among Islamic scholars. That's not debate among laymen. Okay. What I am doing is taking note of that debate and taking note of the fact that one of the most powerful movements in the Islamic world today is challenging a lot of those notions. Now, let me be very clear. What I'm not saying is that Nadatul Ulama or those that favor reform, and you have calls for similar kinds, similar kinds of calls for reforms in, the, in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere today, uh, in fact, published in official Saudi media. Uh, what I'm not saying is that the the call is for a call of a wholesale setting aside of Islamic law. A lot of those rights that you mentioned are not being questioned. Yes. What are being questioned are very specifically at least three things. One is what uh, Pevez just notioned, the issue of what constitutes the state and whether that, and I, unless I misunderstood you, read that as what you were saying as a concept for the state for all Muslims. That notion is being challenged in a world in which uh, we live in nation states. We don't live in a Christian state that encompasses Christians across the globe. We don't live in a Jewish state that encompasses Jews across the globe. And we don't live in a state of Hindus or Muslims that encompasses all his Hindus and Muslims in the state. And that in that sense, the argument is that Islamic law needs to be updated and adjusted to come to grips with the reality that we live in. That's, I think, argument number one. The other, the other major argument here is the argument in favor of human rights, in favor of pluralism, and in favor of equality, irrespective of religion, ethnicity, and uh, uh, and race. Nobody's questioning right to property. Nobody's questioning the right to life. So with other words, it's not wholesale, let's take this body of Islamic law and junk it. What it's saying is there are elements in, in Islamic law, as there are elements in Jewish law, or there are elements in Hinduism or Christianity that no longer are fit for purpose because they no longer, uh, or because they do not embrace, uh, or because they embrace uh, um, concepts of. frozen <laughs> probably can't hear me now Sir, 
انہوں نے کمنٹ کیا میں بتا دوں گا نہیں ہو سکتا ہے دیر آر سرٹن تھنگس میں نے یہ نہیں کہا کہ ریفارم نہیں ہو سکتا میں نے کہا دیر آر سرٹن تھنگس دیر آر سرٹن تھنگس وچ کین بی ریفارم اس کے لیے اس کے لیے آپ میرا لیکچر یہاں پہ رکھیں Ah, good. You're back. Sorry about that. Something went wrong there. Okay, so a very a, quick, a, a very yes. quick comment uh, uh, from my side. My name is Aves, and uh, I'm uh, also a master's in Sharia, and I'm also a master's in corporate uh, corporate law, and I'm a lawyer as well. So whatever I have I'm said, everything you are, I, you are everything I am not. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever I have said, that, <laughs> that I stand by it, and I am pretty much sure that there are so many things which actually need reformation in uh, uh, Islamic jurisprudence, and but these uh, reformation has to be seen on the touchstone of the set principles of Sharia. And if they are not against it, then the reformations can be made, whatever they may be. Thank okay. you. Next. No, look, fair enough. I'm, it's not a debate. This is a debate among Muslim scholars, which I am describing. It's not a debate in which I claim to want to take a position on. I may have my personal views on it, but that's neither here or there, nor there. Professionally, my... Uh, if you wish, obligation is to describe this debate and to, uh, and, and to watch this debate and observe it. Um, and that's, that's as much as I claim. Sir, uh, is it true that uh, Indonesia had a president from Nahjatul Ulama, Wahidi or Wahid, uh, in the last century? 
And the other day I interviewed an Indian, uh, an American scholar who is of an Indian background and he told me, he's a Muslim, Dr. Muqtadar Khan, that 57% American Muslims are okay with gay marriage. So is that an indication of, uh, of reformation within Islam or others will describe it as heresy? So there was Jabr al-Alwani in, in America. He was the head of North, uh, North Fiqh Academy in North America. So he, he came up with some, some interesting ideas. And some ideas came from Tunisia, Rashid Ghanoushi. And uh, there was another guy in Sudan who was initially a Muslim Brotherhood person. But then he changed many of his positions. Turabi. I think Hassan Turabi was his name. So how do you rate these, these individuals and, and these movements? Uh, okay, uh, several things here. First of all, it may very well be that a majority of <clears throat> of major uh, a majority of American Muslims favor LGBTQ. Um, I don't know if that's true or not true. What I do know is that, for example, last year you had a joining of forces of uh, a, a Muslim community in Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, with um, conservative Christian elements who joined forces to object to uh, the inclusion in school libraries of certain literature, uh, which would indicate that there, there's division on that issue within the um, American Muslim community. Uh, what I do think, just to take this a step back, and I've been involved as Perez knows, in quite a bit of discussion around the LGBTQ issue, particularly as it arose in connection to the um, uh, to the Guthrie World Cup and whether or not Qatar should be recognizing the rights of LGBTQ uh, people, uh, fans coming to Qatar to attend the World Cup. And the argument I, I'm, I, may, I was making and still make there in various debates, is that in the debate about rights in Gaza, there was, in my mind, a serious distinction between workers' rights, where, by and large, Gutteries did not have a fundamental problem with it. There were issues that they thought needed to be resolved to ensure certain things, for example, the safety of bank accounts being uh, accessed by um, uh, expatriate managers uh, in a country with no extradition treaties. So therefore, you could essentially go to the bank, empty the account and head for the airport, and nobody was going to stop you. Uh, that there was a distinction between those kind of issues and rights and the issues of LGBTQ. And what I think the experience is, and again, if you look at Turkey or Indonesia, both countries that do, both Muslim majority countries that do not outlaw LGBTQ. And yet those are socially uh, uh, difficult, uh, difficult issues. And therefore, if, if there were to be any change, it would be change that would have to be gradual and in which you would have to have a popular buy-in. You can't impose it uh, from the outside or from the top down. Um, 
with regard to people like Muhammad Taha, who you were referring to, uh, Hussein Turabi, uh, I don't know that Turabi really moved away from his positions. Um, you know, Turabi was a, uh, a Western educated, highly intellectual, uh, religious uh, and political thinker who was very influential together with uh, Sadiq al-Mahdi in terms of uh, where the regime of uh, Bashar al uh, Omar al-Bashir was going. Um, but I don't know that they fundamentally changed their views uh, in the later stages of their life. Okay, go ahead. Uh, hello, this is uh, Farooq Suleria. I got your emails as well. Thanks for all of them. Uh, I have oh, to well, you're welcome. I'm glad to, <laughs> glad to hear a reader. <laughs> uh, two, two quick questions and a comment. First, uh, the battle for the soul of Islam, I think, uh, should also be looked through the first women revolution that is happening in Iran. Uh, would like to know your views on the ongoing movement there. Secondly, what about the political economy of uh, Nehadatul Ulema? Uh, do they get petrodollars? Which classes economically support them in Indonesia? Uh, how do they maintain their massive network economically? Number three, uh, the, the, the protestant movement was also a response to massive changes. Feudalism broke down, and a new economic system was taking shape when it came up. Um, that kind of thing is not happening in, in, in the Muslim world. Uh, hence, I think uh, when we keep looking at the text, uh, this is very problematic to understand the, the religion and the political expressions of it, such as Nehdatul Ulema. Um, we, what we need to do is to look at the material forces which enable them, which empower them. Looking at text remains in a sort of an Orientalist practice. I would like to know your opinion on that too. Thank you. Sure. Um, with regard to uh, the uprising that we've seen in Iran, <clears throat> Iran's, you know, I lived in Iran during the revolution. I lived there from 1978 to 81 and have been back there frequently. Iran is a revolution that's gone off the rails. And most revolutions, frankly, go off the rails ultimately. Um, you have in Iran an autocratic, totally corrupt regime. Oh. And if you ask many Iranians today, uh, they will tell you we know what an Islamic state is, and we have no desire to, uh, to maintain that. And that's what you're seeing expressed in those demonstrations. Um, Again, I don't think those demonstrations are about jurisprudential reform. They're about social and political reform. And they're about uh, uh, a population that is being economically squeezed. On the one hand, by mismanagement of the econ economy domestically, but obviously also as a result of crippling and harsh US sanctions which one can question whether they work or not. Um, I, in, in terms of, um, and I'll come to your second question in a, in a moment, but in terms of 
whether or not one needs to uh, 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 focus on jurisprudential reform rather than social political reform. What I'm not arguing is that one should not focus on social and political form, reform. Absolutely one should. What I am arguing is that unless you also look at um, uh, jurisprudential reform, you're going to have certain sets of problems if, irrespective of what happens. So uh, if, it's, if we're talking about Islamic law uh, and we're talking about the quest that, you know, a, a minority, but nonetheless a substantial number of Muslims supported in terms of the jihad, uh, the jihad as, um, as uh, propagated by the Islamic State, for example, that is grounded in what Naratul Ulama would call uh, obsolete, outdated, or problematic uh, notions of um, um, in religious law. The same can be said about this government in Israel and the way what what in the grounding of its notions. Uh, in my mind, you can trace the kind of humiliation and brutality that Israel exercises in Palestinian territories, uh, you can trace that back to Jewish law. And so that's an indication that, or for, for that matter, some of the RSS's uh, ideology. Uh, uh, so with other words, there is relevance and importance to the need to uh, reform religious law. But it's not the one and only thing. It's not uh, the panacea for the solution of all problems. It's one significant element of a broader palette of reforms that countries need and, and religious groups need to undertake. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. And I, you, your third question. Um, this is uh, in terms of um, uh, in terms of. Uh, social stratification of the movement it's goes across social classes you know if you're talking about a third of the population you're talking about significant social stratification so it goes from the elite all the way down to people in villages in java uh, the movement is largely self-funding uh, uh, I, I'm not. I, I, uh, I, if I, I'm not. If I'm not incorrect, there's funding for certain institutions, for example, universities, uh, religious seminaries. Uh, but by and large, this is an independent, uh, um, a totally independent movement, independent in every sense of the word. Uh, yes, it's correct. Uh, Abdurrahman Wahid, who was probably one of the movement's great visionaries was it for a period of he was the first democratically elected president of indonesia after the overthrow of the uh suharto regime in 1998 and he was the, the leader of nada to 
Go ahead. Go Thank ahead. you very much for the enlightenment. Uh, my question is about for religion. Uh, okay, uh, keep the Islam outside of that uh, for, for the moment. Judaism, Christianity, and Hinduism, is there any basic law which is uh, established in, the, in their sacred text and they are challenged with time? This is one question. There is some example that in different religion, uh, except Islam. And there is uh, this second question is about the Islam. There are some rules which is established in text, uh, sacred text like slavery. You cannot de declare slavery in your constitutional law or any, any law, other, although it is established in the uh, sacred text. The second is the, the banking system. This, this, uh, the interest, which is established all over the world, in, including the Islamic world, but they cannot say, they cannot uh, deviate from them. So there are so, so, so many examples, uh, which is, so I, I want these two opinions from independent interpreter. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for the question. Um, let me, uh, uh, okay, first of all, I think that, you know, Islam and Judaism, in contrast to uh, Christianity and Hinduism, and I don't, frankly, don't know a lot about Hinduism, but as a matter of principle, uh, Islam and Judaism have uh, clearly defined bodies of, 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 of law and bodies of jurisprudence, far more so than either Christianity or um, uh, or Hinduism. Uh, in Judaism, there's constant debate. In fact, one of the principles of the Jewish equivalent, a yeshiva, the, the Jewish, sorry, the Jewish equivalent of a madrasa, is debate and continuous uh, questioning, which is one reason why, for example, the Israeli military is one of the very few militaries where uh, soldiers can question an officer's command. Most militaries are hierarchies. I tell you what, what you do and you march and you know what happens if you don't march. Uh, so there's, there is continuous debate. Um, like all religions, Christianity is a very fractured religion. And those fractures essentially are uh, reflections of questioning. So I would argue that uh, the issue of debate about uh, re re reform within religion or within faith groups is more or less universal, certainly among the major, the world's major faith groups. I think what the difference is, and that's the difference both within Islam but also um, certainly with Judaism, that in at the moment you have a, a movement questioning uh, a number of these things uh, that is very powerful. It's not just an intellectual exercise uh, and it's powerful uh, and, and that makes a substantial difference. I'll just make one comment over here that Hinduism has a lot of stories about gods and goddesses, but 
it is not codified the way Islam and Judaism and Christianity are. There are the laws of Manu in that it is said that uh, if you have a war, then how should the booty be distributed? Uh, who should be king? Who should be not? How your temples are to be preserved? Those sort of details are present over there. But uh, they don't uh, tell you detailed laws about uh, inheritance and so forth. Uh, sir, my question is, as you say that Islam is a peaceful religion. So, I, uh, on the other hand, sir, in the Quran, Islam also give, uh, us the, uh, give us the order to do jihad. So, I would like to know that, uh, uh, what is uh, to tell you that it is a peaceful religion? Look, first of all, I think, you know, just, just as a matter of principle, and you know this as well as I do, um, jihad means different things to different people. Um, and, uh, and so uh, I don't, you know, what I do think is, and I think that's true for Islam as well as uh, for Judaism and for Christianity, you can find in the texts whatever it is you want to find and you can you can interpret that in whatever way you wish to interpret it so extremists jihadists interpret that in a certain way um, a majority of muslims interpret it very differently and i think what this whole debate about reform of islam is is it's about to take it's it's about uh one accommodating to the world we live in but it's also uh trying to shape what this law what these laws mean and what these legal concepts entail so that we don't get into the issues of religious extremism whether that's jihadists or whether that's uh uh jewish messianism or Christian nationalism, or Hindu nationalism, for that matter. Okay. If there are no more questions, then uh, oh, there is a, one small question. Do you think Saudi regime, which is uh, doing so many changes, would they also stop funding uh, jihadist groups, especially in Pakistan, where we are the victims? Look, I, I think they have stopped. There's been, first of all, certainly from the period of the early 1970s, but starting with the 1960s, when Maududi was a key player in the, in the uh, formulation of the concepts of the Rabita, the Muslim World League, as well as the Islamic uh, University in Medina. And going forward from the 1970s until 2015, uh, Saudi Arabia spent a humongous amount of money on supporting not just Wahhabi, but I think supporting ultra-conservative Muslim movements. And the key there was not so much the, re the religious aspect, but as long as they were anti-Iran and anti-Shiite, they qualified. Uh, if I'm not incorrect, there's a uh, famous letter that um, Sheikh Ab uh, Abdulaziz bin Baz 
the former Grand Mufti of Saudi Arabia wrote in, I think, the 1980s to uh, the Diobandis, in which he said, paraphrased, we differ on multiple issues, but we will support you because it serves the purpose of the Saudi state. Um, I think you've seen a significant cutback uh, in terms of Saudi support for ultra-conservative religious groups since the rise of the Salmans. And in fact, look at the Grand Mosque in Brussels, which was very problematic because it was uh, being run and it was one of the few mosques that was the Saudi-funded mosques outside of the kingdom that was actually being run by Saudi nationals uh, who were Wahhabis and were, were increasingly coming into conflict with the Belgian government. And Mohammed bin Salman basically said, here's the mosque, take it over. Want nothing more to do with it. Uh, I think what you're seeing now, uh, and you've seen over the last eight years, that it may not be Saudi Arabia uh, as the country, the Arab country that is the foremost funder of all kinds of non-state actors. There's a lot more of that coming out of the United Arab Emirates today. And to the degree that the Saudis were willing to do that under the Salmans, and even that is starting to change now with the geopolitical changes we're seeing in the Middle East, it was to serve a geopolitical purpose rather than a religious purpose. Yeah. The other day, somebody told me that there are so many incomplete mosques and madrasas in Punjab because the Saudi funding has stopped. Sorry? Now, what you yeah. said was that there are many incomplete mosques and madrasas in Punjab because the Saudi funding has suddenly stopped. That I don't know. Uh, what I do know was I was about four years ago part of a, uh, a research that was funded out of Denmark but conducted in Pakistan that looked at the funding structure of madrasas in uh, Pakistan. And at the time we concluded that only 7% of uh, madrasa funding came from outside of Pakistan. I, I, that could very well be true, but uh, there's also one other factor, which is that the money transfer from Saudi Arabia or the UAE doesn't necessarily go through the government. It could go through private individuals who have business interests in Pakistan, and uh, um, that's the more usual way of transferring funds, I think. Well, that's certainly true. That's something we've looked at. It's something that I've looked at, at in great detail. Uh, so, with other words, Saudi when we talk about Saudi funding, it's sort of one of these catch-all phrases, uh, and it's particularly imprecise. Uh, there, was, there were monies that were going through the Dawa um, departments of Saudi embassies overseas. There were monies that were going through what I would call governmental, non-governmental organizations. Uh, such as the Muslim World League and other organizations that have since been closed down by the Saudis. Uh, there were monies that, uh, for example, 
Sifa uh, al-Sahaba was collecting, where the Saudis, in my mind, looked the other way. But it was, they had their own operatives in Mecca and elsewhere in the, in the kingdom uh, who were collecting significant funds. Uh, and there were monies of um, private individuals who, you know, their employee would return back to uh, Pakistan and the, um, the employee would be given a sum of money to build a mosque, which he did. He probably benefited from, from part of that money, but he built the mosque and that gave him in his hometown or home village significant prestige. Okay, one very quick question before we go to the online questions. Okay, should I? Okay, just a hypothetical question regarding the Saudi. Uh, had there been democracy in Saudi, could there these reform possible in uh, Saudi or UAE? Sorry, had there been democracy, what would be possible? Would reform have been uh, would reform have been possible if there had been a democracy? rather than an autocrat in charge? Well, that my, the simple answer is in my mind, yes. But it raises a fun, much more fundamental question. And whether or not, and that is whether or not these kind of reforms, and it goes back to the very, one of the very first questions that Pervez asked in terms of uh, resistance to, uh, to reforms in Saudi Arabia. And the question is whether these kind of reforms can be uh, initiated top down or whether they have to come bottom up. Uh, democracy obviously is the framework that would allow for a bottom up uh, approach to reform. I have the online questions. Uh, James. Since this session is running live on the Black Hole's Facebook page, uh, we have online audience as well. And uh, for their representation, uh, I would like to put just a few questions out of many. Uh, number one, it is, uh, asked from, uh, it is asked by writers in, uh, it seems a pseudonym. Anyways, he asks, keeping the current trajectories that the UAE and other countries are following, uh, what would be the possible future or what would be the consequences for Pakistan? Sorry, the question is, given the trajectory of uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, what is the... What uh, are the consequences the for Pakistan? First of all, I, I think that, look, Saudi Arabia and the UAE are very different countries. Saudi Arabia and the UAE, as opposed to Pakistan, are very different countries. So I don't know that uh, that uh, one can necessarily uh, uh, draw that comparison. And I think I would also be cautious to draw that a comparison because what is happening is in, in Saudi Arabia and the UAE is social and economic reform, but uh, accompanied by increased political repression. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily a model that Pakistan would want to follow. Now, having said that, um, I also think that uh, Pakistan is has, has serious political problems, 
serious problems when it comes to issues of uh, mutual respect, of pluralism. Uh, I mean, what you don't see in, um, in uh, Saudi Arabia or the UAE are lynchings, as you've seen in uh, Pakistan, for example. So, uh, uh, as Pervez knows, I've traveled extensively to Pakistan over many decades. And I think my impression has been that Pakistan is fundamentally an ultra-conservative country. And once you leave the bubbles of the big cities, it's a different world that you enter. So that process of change is probably going to be generational in Pakistan. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, the second question is from D. Raimo. He asks, all those reformations you talked about in the recent uh, years seem to be coming from the governments due to, the, due to economic necessities. Why don't we get to see a revolution from the grassroots level in Muslim countries, especially when their political and other freedoms are so blatant, blatantly repressed? Um, okay, let me just clarify. When I was talking about Saudi Arabia and the UAE, those were reforms that were coming from the government. Uh, in, in Indonesia, it's a different question. First of all, it's a civil society movement. And Indonesia is a democracy. Now, the government may not be, may be empathetic to uh, much of what the, um, the civil society movement is doing, but it is a civil society movement. It's not a government as such. Uh, on the point of revolutions, um, let's look at the last uh, 13 years. You had in 2011 uprisings in multiple Arab countries. You had four Arab leaders toppled um, I think that uh, the counter-revolution that you saw primarily coming out of the UAE, but also out of Saudi Arabia, that led to, um, that was one factor, not the only factor, uh, one factor that led to the 2013 um, military coup in Egypt, um, that has led to civil war in uh, Libya in Yemen, in Syria, that, you know, I think that had a dampening effect. But even if it did have a dampening effect, go to the last years of the last decade. So 2019, 2020. Again, you had popular revolts that overthrew the leaders of four Arab countries, Algeria, uh, Iraq, Lebanon and uh, Sudan. Now, again, you have a situation in which uh, uh, there's been uh, enormous strife in Sudan. We're watching that at the moment as we speak with the confrontation between the uh, mili Sudanese military and the RSF. Um, 
we've seen uh, political instability in Iraq. Uh, the revolt in Algeria has, um, has stalled and Lebanon is on the brink of collapse. Uh, now, that's not to say that we won't see more, more revolts. And, and, and of course, now we've seen the revolt in Iran. I think we will continue to see revolts. The problem with it is that going from a revolt that is successful in terms of overthrowing a leader to structural change is a very difficult process that uh, would be difficult even if you did not have external intervention in an attempt to, to roll things back. So I would argue that the last decade has been a decade of defiance and dissent. Uh, and uh, there's no reason to believe that we won't see more of that, at least in uh, significant parts of the Middle East. Uh, I think in, uh, in the Gulf, we probably, for a variety of reasons, even though even in the Gulf, if you go back to 2011, it took um, a military crackdown backed by the UAE and by Saudi Arabia to, to um, squash the revolt in Bahrain. You had protests in Kuwait. You had protests in Jeddah. And you had protests in Oman. Uh, now, with the exception of Bahrain, none of those um, evolved into a popular uh, uprising. Uh, and um, it's going to take quite a bit. You would have to have total economic mismanagement and failure in a country like Saudi Arabia or the UAE uh, to do that. And add to that that a majority of the Gulf countries are minority pop. You know, the indigenous population, the citizenry, is a minority, and that's a risky situation. We are done with the questions, or do you just one? Yeah. Okay, one last question. Okay, uh, there are many, but do you, since we are running out of time, uh, I'm putting last question from our online audience. Uh, Abdul Hamid Mayer asks Had the ishtihad as advocated by some thinkers like Iqbal been accepted by most of the Islamic clergy, one would have been optimistic about changes in Islam. Since that is not happening, does it not show that the Islamic clergy is still resisting change in Muslim societies? Uh, who is resisting in Muslim society? The clergy. Well, I think you know, this goes back to an earlier remark where I was uh, quoting Ahmed Kuru. A lot of the clergy, certainly in Muslim autocracies, essentially are aligned with the state. That's where their bread and butter comes from. So they're not going to be the people who are pushing for, for reform. It's going to be independence. Now, in a country like Saudi Arabia, those that are independent of the state uh, are in prison. And if they're not in prison, um, they wisely so prefer to remain silent. Um, which means, again, that an 
if you have an independent civil society movement that can speak out, that becomes, you know, that adds importance to what it's saying and what it's doing, because you either have a clergy that is totally aligned with an autocratic state, uh, or a clergy that uh, is being prevented from speaking out. There's a simple phrase in Pakistan, military mullah alliance. And uh, that has survived the last uh, 40 years. It's been a symbiotic relationship between the military and the mullah. And they've been joined together because of jihad, because of wanting to conquer Kashmir and make it Pakistan. And they have uh, so far been good to each other. But um, now I think there are serious problems arising over there because uh, the state has come under attack earlier and now it is coming under attack again with the rise of the TTP. So with that, uh, I think we should end. Thank you very much, James. It's been a great session with you. You took out the time and everyone here much enjoyed it and learned from you. Thank you. Well, I learned from you and I enjoyed the questions. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me.